Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is show number 284, and we have Dr. Ben Myris on. He is a research ge geologist with the USGS, and uh, we're happy to have Ben on with us tonight. We're going to be talking about landslides. And so as we uh, enter the tropical season and we can see some heavier rains from tropical storms and hurricanes, I'm sure we'll talk about the threat of landslides. So our goal tonight is to kind of get you caught up with what a landslide is, maybe where they will happen, and maybe some triggers. So when we do see those uh, tropical systems move through the area, you'll have that little bit of a heads up. This is an interactive show. We'd love for you to interact with us. You can watch us right now on Facebook Live, Periscope, and on Twitch. And if you're listening on our podcast devices, uh, we'll let you, uh, we'll let our guests give you some information, maybe how you can find out more about landslides towards the end of this show. So again, this is show number 284. I do want to mention um, that uh, we do have a, a severe thunderstorm warning in effect for central Greene County and eastern North Carolina, as well as Lenore and Pitt County. And that goes until nine o'clock. Uh, this severe thunderstorm was just issued about 10 minutes ago. Uh, the storm could be uh, producing 60 mile per hour winds as well as penny size hail. So again, uh, some of the locations would be Greenville, White, uh, Witterville, Aiden, Farmville, Snow Hill, Bell Arthur, Blackjack, uh, Mari, Roundtree, and uh, the uh, East, East Carolina University. I know we have a uh, weather stem camera there at East Carolina, so maybe we can uh, draw that up at some point during the show. So anyways, uh, that is uh, the severe weather. That's the only severe weather warning that we have in the area, but we'll continue to monitor uh, the uh, radar throughout the show, and if anything uh, else breaks out, we'll be sure to update you that severe thunderstorm warning out for the uh, metropolitan Greenville, North Carolina metropolitan area. I know President Trump's there tonight, so a lot of people there at uh, East Carolina University. So uh, if you know someone there, just be mindful of that and let them know that, hey, there's a severe thunderstorm around. So uh, anyways, I will uh, toss it over to our guest tonight. We have on with us Dr. Ben Myris. Again, he is a geologist for the USGS. Ben, welcome to the show. You're there in a Golden, Colorado. So uh, we uh, welcome you to the show tonight. Great. Thanks very much. Great to be here. Yes, uh, we're happy to have you, Ben, and uh, we know that you've uh, been doing a lot of research on landslides. You actually uh, have some connections to the Carolinas, so with that, I'll kind of let you tell us uh, your your story and, and how you got involved in geology and uh, and covering landslides, and I know you have a hydrologist uh, background, hydrology background as well, so kind of tell us about uh, who you are and uh, the story that uh, that has taken you to where you are today. All right, great. Thanks very much, Scotty. Um, yeah, so I, uh, as you mentioned, I'm a, a research geologist with the U.S. Geological Survey, and um, my background is in, in both geology and, and hydrology. So I started off um, studying rocks as an undergrad and, and uh, fell in love with field trips and be able to go outside and look at rocks and, and landscape features and um, figured out that I could do this for a living and, and continue to learn about the earth uh, throughout my career. And so that's kind of what led me to this, uh, this general profession. Um, I was a, uh, a hydrologist for a long time in California, and then I moved out to North Carolina. I was on the faculty at UNC Chapel Hill, and then I had an opportunity to come back to the USGS and, and work exclusively on landslides here in Colorado. Um, I am stationed in Colorado, but we, uh, we in the Landslide Hazards Program Division of the, the USGS work all over the country. Um, so most recently, I got back from Alaska 
Uh, I do work in North Carolina and, and Washington State and California, all over the country. So um, I'm not an expert on North Carolina. I know a little bit about some of the stuff uh, going on in the, the Carolinas and Appalachia, uh, but but certainly um, talk in general about landslides. So uh, I know you've got some specific questions. Maybe I'll just start by talking in general a little bit about landslides. Yeah, that was going to be my first question. So okay. uh, you could tell everybody what is a landslide. Sure. Um, a landslide in the, the most basic terms is a downslope movement of earth materials. So earth materials being sand, silt, clay, all the, the sediment, soil, rock, uh, but that also can entrain vegetation, trees, um, and in the destructive scenarios, also uh, the built environment and cars and in and, and rare and tragic cases, humans. Um, and so there's a number of different triggers of landslides. They can be triggered by earthquakes, by volcanic eruptions. Um, and I assume the main focus here today is going to be on, on hydrometeorological triggers, uh, rainfall, snow melts, or uh, rain on snow events. Um, and so those, that's kind of my main area of focus as well with a background in, in hydrology, um, understanding how the rainfall processes as they hit the ground, infiltrate into the soil, create um, a wetter, heavier soil that is less strong. And ultimately a landslide is triggered when the forces that resist failure, namely friction, are overcome by the forces that force failure, namely gravity. So um, that's kind of the, the basics of, of rainfall triggered landslides. Excellent, excellent. I mean, feel free to go in just a little bit deeper with that. What are some other effects of landslides, causes of uh, landslides, other things like that? Sure. So to kind of get deeper into the physics side of things, the, the landslides are triggered. The, the main thing we kind of pay attention to landslides is poor water pressure. So uh, you're probably aware that soils and earth materials have void spaces, or we call porosity, and that, that pore space can get filled with water. And once it kind of develops enough of a elevated poor water pressure such that the, the strength of the material changes, so you add the water to soil and the strength will decrease. And then also the weight increases. So you get a heavier material that's less strong and that is able to overcome the forces of friction and uh, tree roots and various things like soil cohesion that hold the slope together, get overcome and you have a, a slope failure. Um, so that's, that's kind of getting a little bit more into the, the physics of it. There are many different types of landslides. Um, even just associated with rainfall triggering, it has to do with the types of materials, the style of movement. Um, so I can get into some of that too. Um, but the kind of most relevant types for the Carolinas, there's there's big, deep, slow-moving landslides that may be associated with seasonal activity. So a really heavy winter or a really heavy uh, series of storms in the summer might lead to an elevated water table in a region. So there's higher pore water pressures within that, and that large body of material might move. And then another type that's really common and uh, arguably more destructive in, in terms of the, the damage to, to the built environment and, and fatalities are debris flows. And those are rapidly moving, uh, almost fluidized uh, landslides that initiate usually after a heavy, intense rainstorm. Uh, associated with in, in the Carolinas, associated with hurricanes or tropical storms. Um, and those those also form in a similar similar physical process where the rainfall infiltrates into the soil, creates a heavier, wetter, uh, less strong soil 
that fails rapidly, and those can move really quickly, upwards of 30 miles per hour. Um, and uh, typically, by the time they, they travel down slope, they're anywhere from 40 to 60% water content, and the rest being materials. And they can move an incredible amount of material. They'll move every fill and train uh, large boulders the size of houses or car, small houses or cars in, in the most extreme cases. Um, they'll take out vegetation and, um, of course, anything else in its path. That was going to be my question is what types of landslides are there? And, and is there any correlation? I know we hear, we hear the term like mudslides, right? Is that, is that kind of the same thing? I mean, we're talking about the same thing in essence. It's just, it's just different verbiage here. Um, and, and the types of landslides that you have, how do they differ on the East Coast versus the West Coast? Yeah, certainly. Well, uh, the, the physical principles are all the same. Um, and the, the gravity overcomes the forces of friction. And, and um, there are different terminologies. I should mention the, the one other type of, of landslide that's relevant in, the, in there, and that actually most recently was shutting down I-40 uh, in Western North Carolina's rockfall. So uh, you may notice from the description of the types of landslides is that they actually have to do with the type of movement and the type of material. And so there's lots of different formal classifications of landslides, and I, I won't, I'm not a, an expert on all of those. I won't get into that, but, but essentially the, the uh, rock fall is very intuitive. It's rock that falls. Uh, debris flow, it's debris that flows. And uh, mudslide is another word that gets, there is, a, um, technically there are mudslides that happen as well, but that's typically a more colloquial term for debris flow. Um, and that mudslides only happen when they're exclusively very fine grain material. Um, and usually once you have that, that type of a fast slurry of, of earth material moving down slope, it's going to be having boulders and gravel and sand and all that stuff in it, which technically makes it a, a debris flow. Um, thanks for, so thanks I, for that clarification. If you got specific questions, but that's kind of the, the thrust of it. Oh, yeah, you mentioned the, the coasts, right? Yeah, difference between East Coast and West Coast. Yeah, so the weather has a big impact on that and the vegetation has a big impact on that and the soil types have a big impact on that. And so if you have a sandier, better drained soil, then that's maybe able to accommodate a different type of rainstorm than the soils you have uh, where they're higher clay content, maybe a thicker soil with denser vegetation. And so the type of landslide we see is not just related to, to the climate, but also the landscape that's evolved in that climate. Um, and so in Southern California, big problem with landslides is associated with post-fire debris flows. So after a wildfire, uh, the fire will take out all the vegetation. It will also, the ash from the vegetation that, that burned will clog up some of the pore space in the soils. Um, and we also, some of the organic material that burns will create a hydrophobic layer on top of the soils. And um, you also have kind of a surface crusting and then also by hyper drying out the soils, pulling all the cooking out of the water out, you also decrease the permeability or the ability of that soil to absorb water. And so after fires, it takes a much smaller rainfall event to generate runoff and debris flows than you might have uh, in, a, in an undisturbed setting. Um, so we don't see those as much on the East Coast. There, uh, we were talking earlier uh, in 2016, there was a, a bout of wildfires all over uh, Southern Appalachia. There's a lot of concern that there'd be the similar type of debris flow there that we see very commonly on the West Coast and in the Intermountain West. And uh, thankfully, we, we didn't have that. And that's a, a process we're still trying to study and trying to understand better because um, as we see more and more 
droughts and um, intense extreme weather changes, there's the possibility that those, those wildfires will be more and more frequent and we may have to worry about that process in, in other parts of the country. Yeah, and, and rolling into that into our next segment, I'm just kind of curious, uh, as far as landslide, landslide uh, you know, forecasting and detection, you know, what what uh, what kind of uh, tools do you guys have available and that you use operationally, uh, not only to uh, detect landslides, but to maybe try to forecast them before they happen, uh, just to you know let the public know that uh, hey, uh, might want to uh, you know stay on the lookout for this. Yeah, that's that is a really great question. That's a big topic of our research. Um, so the USGS really one of our main emphases is trying to develop research tools and products that will reduce the risk and impact uh, associated with landslide hazards. Um, honestly, the best forecasting that we have for landslides is, is weather forecasts. So what you all do, um, if we don't know where and when and how hard it's going to rain, we really can't provide much information about uh, landslide forecasting. Um, so to kind of go back to what I was talking about landslide initiation, there's two uh, elements well, I guess it really all comes down to that poor water pressure. And so in theory, if we could measure poor water pressure in the subsurface everywhere, uh, we'd have a much better sense of when and where landslides were going to occur. Um, that's very challenging, and we obviously can't do that. Um, and there's been a whole, rightly so, a, a vast amount of resources put into weather forecasting. It's really important across all uh, parts of the country economy. But we don't have quite the same level of resources into forecasting poor water pressure. And so even if you guys did a perfect job of predicting weather everywhere, we still wouldn't be able to predict landslides at the same degree of accuracy. Um, but one of the things that we're really trying to do is develop situational awareness tools for when landslides might be more likely in different landslide prone areas. And so the weather forecast is a big part of that. The other part that we look at is how wet is the soil before incoming storm? And so we've got a, a series of in-situ uh, soil moisture and pore water pressure monitoring stations all across the country where we monitor kind of the, what we call the antecedent conditions or how wet the soil is before a storm comes in. And if looking back in the record and seeing how wet storm, uh, soils were before a landslide event, we're able to kind of piece together and using numerical and physically based models able to put together predictions about what levels of soil moisture and, and antecedent conditions associated with how much rainfall are likely to trigger landslides. And so the USGS is in cooperation with local National Weather Service forecast offices to try to communicate that. We don't have 24-7 capabilities, and so all we can do is provide kind of some situational awareness that then the Weather Service can use in, in issuing alerts. So you mentioned the poor water pressure sensors and how you wish you, know, you could measure everywhere all the time because it would make forecasting really easy. Is that something um, that is a, is that an actual thing, meaning in areas that you all might deem a high risk um, area for a landslide that are near homes and, and developments? Are there those sensors um, that can tell you whether or not something may be getting ready to happen? So currently we don't have those kind of above strategic infrastructure that would certainly be great um you know you mentioned later in the show we could get to where you could learn more about landslides but the, the usgs landslides um, website does have a link to our monitoring stations and we do have just about a dozen monitoring stations in different parts of the country in landslide prone terrain i'll mention the three that we have in north carolina one is um in mooney gap or in the the um, near Coweta 
Um, another one is in Poplar Cove, which is outside of Franklin, and another one at Ben Creek, which is just outside of Asheville. So we have kind of three locations where we actually are monitoring subsurface pore water pressure, rainfall, uh, volumetric water content, these uh, variables that relate to landslide initiation. We're trying to learn more about those specific locations and see if we can use that to extrapolate using models and, and other process understanding to different locations. And, you know, uh, as a national agency, that's kind of the extent that our resources allow us to do at this point. Um, I'm not aware, but it certainly would be possible for private companies or people to install these same sensors in locations that they were concerned about related to landslides. Um, one of our locations is associated with a railway corridor in the Seattle metropolitan area. And that was that monitoring effort was initiated by a partnership uh, through a partnership with Sound Transit, which is a railway company. They run a commuter rail up and down the coast right below some very landslide prone bluffs. And they, they wanted to know better when should we avoid running trains below these very treacherous bluffs. And so that's been an ongoing research collaboration with them. And, and so some of our research has informed their operations. So that's kind of just one example, but um, you know, we have limited personnel who can work on this. So yeah, real quick, Ben, I wanted to add to that and I'll hand it over to Scotty. Um, we talk about, you know, oversaturated soils and undersaturated soils being problematic, especially when you have a wildfire. Um, and you mentioned weather service you work with. Do you also work with the drought monitor? and seeing where you have drier conditions that may trigger debris flows or, um, you know, what other modes of communication do you, do you use to get information across, especially like California, when you see um, an immense amount of rainfall heading that way, that's sort of an alert to, to let you know, to start looking at historical analysis to find out where we are in the process of, of their soil content and their capability to re retain. Yeah, sorry, I wouldn't trip you up. Um, so mostly when I talk about the hyper dry soils, a drought isn't sufficient to get things to that, that really next level of, of hydrophobicity, we call it. Um, you really need a wildfire and, and not just a mild wildfire, but a moderate to intense severity burn. And so our team works, uh, the, the post-fire debris flow team works in close communication with what are called bear teams, bear, burn area emergency response teams that go into every wildfire and assess the burn severity, the damages and things like this. And so they're in communication with them to find out the burn severity, which is one of the inputs into our post-fire debris flow models. And then they use that information to produce what's called a preliminary or, or rapid hazard assessment of the potential for post-fire debris flows. And that gets posted online. And then emergency managers, the weather service and various folks can use that information to coordinate response efforts when there's a storm coming in. So for example, the, the most recent big one that you've probably heard about in the news is uh, in Montecito, California in uh, January of last year. Um, that was an event where we were aware, well, in fact, that the, the storm itself that generated all the debris flows also finally put the fire out um, but we were aware ahead of time that there was a storm coming in and we did our post-fire hazard assessment to determine which of the, the basins would be most susceptible and the degree of susceptibility. And so all that information went in and helped the emergency planners make some of their mandatory evacuation announcements and, and things like that. Um, so I, I kind of steered away from the question of the, the dry soils. We don't use drought monitoring at all. We mostly care about how wet the soil is or if there's been a fire. Understood. Thank you for the clarification. Scotty, back to you.
I think you should. I just want to update you on uh, use of your thunderstorm warning issued for Welterboro, Cottageville, and Hendersonville, South Carolina, until 9:30. Uh, that in the Charleston metro uh, forecast area. So, uh, Ben, I'll, I've been doing some research about landslides. Uh, myself and Evan, we live in Western North Carolina, and so uh, we've heard our fair share about landslides and, and actually experienced a few. Um, recently, uh, 1916, 1940, 1969, 1977, 1985, 2004, and 2018, all years that had some kind of significant uh, landslide debris flow event in Western North Carolina. And out of those events, um, there was six of them uh, that were created from some sort of tropical storm hurricane making landfall either along the Gulf of Mexico or the Atlantic um, seaboard so uh, my question to you is is how are how are the tropics and landslides debris flows um, kind of intertwined I, I know uh, working with the National Weather Service in, in Greenville Spartanburg which covers uh, western North Carolina upstate South Carolina when we see landfalling tropical events when we're expecting to see heavy rains uh, they always put out this public public information statement uh, discussing landslides and debris flows so can you talk to us about how how tropical systems can really enhance uh, these these sort of events and, and why they may be more pivotal in, 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 for us to watch than any other scenario for landslides sure yeah i mean Again, it really goes all back down to the rainfall and the rainfall amount and uh, the duration of the rainfall. Um, so those tropical storms are really carry so much moisture and they move inland and slow down. Uh, and you guys feel free to chime in. I am not the, the meteorological expert, but they slow down and they, they can dump quite a bit of rainfall in a relatively small location. And so when it comes to uh, the Carolinas, you guys have rain all the time. The, the soils and topography and vegetation has adapted to accommodate that. Um, and so these rare events that come in, I, I guess rare in a relative sense, uh, it, less frequent events that come in and dump a huge amount of rainfall overwhelm the system that uh, they're beyond what it's really ready to accommodate. And that's what leads to those high pore water pressures that trigger landslides and, and debris flows. Um, that, that's maybe the shorter answer. Maybe you want to ask some targeted follow-up questions, but uh, it's really just all about the amount of rainfall that can be dumped in one place. And, and uh, yeah. I guess I kind of follow up with that. You said, you know, they're kind of rare. Um, uh, Evan, please jump in because you and I, we live here in the same area, but it seems like we're, we're starting to see more and more of these happen in Western North Carolina. Do you think that's because we're seeing more heavy rain events or is it because it's rained so much in previous years that the, the soil's weakened? I mean, uh, could, it, could it be because we're seeing more of these events that that's causing more uh, heavier rain events, causing more landslides? I mean, uh, Evan, you know, you live there in the Asheville area. I know Interstate 40 at one time last year was, was totally closed because of this. Yeah, I can think of three on Interstate 40 three right here, 40 right here near my house, and the big one just uh, over the mountain, just in the last 12 months, um, all landslides. Um, and one of them shut down Highway 9 for nine months. Uh, if you drive through it, it is a huge landslide. So it, I think you're right, Scott, yeah, over this last year, it's just been an, a huge, we've had such an increase in these heavy precipitation events. We've had at least four days over the last year uh, where we had daily rainfall totals. Uh, near or exceeding five inches of rain, um, which 
that just hasn't happened in years past. And I know that happened in 2004 with uh, Ivy, uh, Hurricane Ivan um, and Francis right before, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. Um, but when those rainfall events start kicking off, it sounds like from what uh, Dr. Ben's been saying that, that that might be, like you said, our, our trigger, especially because you listed the years earlier. And before 2018, 2004 was the last year with a big landslide. Um, so that's a, I mean, heavy rains in 2004 and then heavy, heavy rains in 2018. That seems like a good point. Yeah, certainly. And I guess I guess I should point out that it's it's not just the, the hurricane, the tropical storms aren't, I guess, rare events, but they're not happening every day, every week, um, all throughout the year. And uh, certainly a sequence of storms are just continued above average rainfall. And that's the case in 2018 and, and 2013. Uh, they weren't associated, the landslides weren't associated with any particular uh, tropical system. It was just uh, above average, consistently above average rainfall um, over many parts of the mountains, um, mountains up there. So yeah, it's it certainly, it is an annual thing, um, landslides there. And, and it's just that sometimes there's really big ones that dump rain, a large amount of rain over a large area and cause the widespread landslide events that really turn from a landslide hazard into a disaster that affects a huge area. I, I know we're, we're kind of, our time is, is getting away from us, but to kind of add on to that, you know, Evan, we were talking about interstate being closed, but just last year we had deaths in Polk County uh, and as well as Watauga County from, from this. And um, so much for, you know, up until last June, North Carolina had cut out um, research and landslide um, um tool uh, monitoring. Uh, North Carolina had cut it out of their budget and uh, last year back in June Governor Roy Cooper pledged so many million dollars to uh, to pick the landslide um, hazard program back up for North Carolina just because of the recent heavy rain events that we've had. So anyways uh, you know tropics and, and flash flooding and landslides at least here in the western North Carolina area all uh, kind of go hand in hand. So Tim, I know you had some some questions, and I don't I don't want to take up all the time talking about this particular subject because we're going to talk a little bit about it more here in just a little bit. Excellent. Yeah, I wanted to ask, you know, what areas are most at risk for landslides? Um, well, the the areas of the the Carolinas that are, have the highest incidence of of debris flows, in particular, is along the Blue Ridge Escarpment, where it's the high elevation, very steep slopes. And that's for a number of factors that the slopes are steep. So the steeper the slopes, the more likely there are to be landslides, but also there's the orographic effect that you see with precipitation uh, or, or storm events coming in there and they hit the mountains and rise up quickly and dump even more rainfall. So you have an, uh, a kind of double whammy of steep slopes and elevated rainfall. Um, and then the kind of on a more local level, we typically think of especially about debris flows occurring in convergent topography. So when you have very steep convergent topography, uh, those are areas that are more likely to initiate because you have water that accumulates from all the kind of slope angles converging into uh, what we call a hollow or a, a zero order channel basin. Uh, and then so as far as the initiation part, that's, um, that's a, an area of concern as well. Uh, one thing we say as geologists is landslides happen where they've happened before. So uh, Scotty mentioned the state efforts uh, at, in North Carolina, at least to, to bring back the landslide mapping effort. That's a big part of landslide hazard analysis is figure out where landslide happened, landslides happened in the past and how can we learn from that moving forward. 
And that kind of goes into what I was wanting to talk about next is, you know, in the meteorology community, and I know you, you also have a hydrologist or hydrology background. Uh, one of our, our biggest things is communicating. And so um, we, we have something called the Weather Ready Nation that NOAA does and, and Carolina Weather Group's Weather Ready Nation ambassador. Um, how, how do you guys at the USGS, how do you guys talk about communicate um, effectively communicate landslide risks? Do you team up with local weather forecast offices with the National Weather Service? Uh, do you guys have your own safety campaign? How does that work out? Yeah, well, so one of the things to kind of briefly go back to the, the state level is that, so we, we work at the national level, but there's a, a huge amount of the work as far as landslide mapping and hazard assessment happens at the state level. And so particularly states that have the resources and the landslide hazard issue, spend a lot of the time mapping where have landslides happened, even developing susceptibility maps. Um, and then the, the when is something that we work a lot with different state agencies and to kind of develop local relationships uh, that, that can be useful in different climates and, and environmental settings. And then the, the communicating with the weather service side of things, that is also kind of, you're probably aware that each weather service office is distinctly different, even though there's this national weather ready movement. Um, and so it, a lot of it's developing relationships with individual weather offices where there are people and landslides and trying to develop a, um, a communication where we can communicate to them when and, and where landslides are likely to be happening, and then they can communicate that on through their weather alerts. So knowing where a lot of these landslides have happened in the past uh, kind of walked us into the ability to have a conversation about some of these specific events that have occurred both here in the Carolinas um, and also across the, you know, the entire United States. Um, specifically, I know we talked a little bit before the show about the Peaks Creek uh, landslide back in 2004 uh, during the remnants of Hurricane Ivan. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what happened and what exactly the triggers were for that specific event? Sure, yeah, so I mean, again, it, it really all comes down to the same physics um, of the heavy rainfall saturating the soils. And, and in this particular case, we had Hurricane Francis coming in, dumping, I wanna say, on the order of eight to 10 inches of rainfall, correct me if I'm wrong, and then swiftly followed by Hurricane Ivan with another a uh, similar amount of rainfall. And so when you have a lot of rain falling on already wet soil, then you have really the, the conditions for debris flows are, are really ripe. And in that case, there were hundreds hundreds of debris flows, um, mostly debris flows or other kinds of landslides that were also triggered, some, some shallow landslides, some deeper landslides. Um, and I, I'm aware of about five, I think at least five fatalities associated with that event. Um, many residences damaged and and i guess there were many counties that uh, had an official disaster uh, response issued and so that's that's an example of what i talk about as a widespread landsliding event um, because it affected so many people and in such a severe way and you know you talk about landslides happening almost every every year and sometimes multiple times a year that's certainly the case and but this is the sort of event we really worry about as, as a disaster event been been picking yeah. on that real quick. Um, we also we're talking about mainly United States. Um, let's consider the Caribbean, right? Like mm -hmm. U.S. territory. Um, any of our extensions down there, Puerto Rico, right? Is there a landslide uh, threat down in the Caribbean islands as well? And, and what what sort of thing is driving that? I mean, we have volcanic islands largely, yeah, or, and some not volcanic, but 
you know, what, what are the different threats there? Yeah, I mean, it, we are working actually pretty extensively in Puerto Rico uh, right now after, after Hurricane Maria, which generated tens of thousands of landslides across the island. Uh, that was a particularly devastating storm, but they have those pretty regularly in the Caribbean. And, um, and so what we're doing right now is, is a three-pronged effort, kind of trying to understand what controlled the landslide initiation susceptibility in Puerto Rico. Um, so are there geologic controls? Um, are there antecedent moisture uh, factors that we really need to consider? Um, ultimately, a, a huge part of it is just where the highest rainfall intensities were as that tropical storm passed over the island and it really went right through the middle. Um, and and uh, another factor that we're working on is trying to educate uh, the people there about landslide hazards. What are some of the basic things to consider? And this is not just in, in the Caribbean, but all over the United States. Uh, a huge number of the landslides have some sort of human activity associated with that, mostly excavation or roads. So we see a lot of highway road embankments failing because they've been oversteepened or not drained properly. We see a lot of uh, cut slopes on private and public property that aren't drained properly and, and then develop a, a elevated potential or susceptibility for landsliding. Uh, there's a study I, I was seeing in North Carolina that 89% of the landslides associated between 1995 and 2016 had some sort of human involved slope modification. And we see a similar number, about 80%. Uh, there's a study on that in, in the Seattle area. And so there's really a huge amount of this, um, of the hazard is associated with our own activities. Very interesting. Thank you very much. I'm sure that applies to Hawaii as well. So the folks over sure. in Hawaii, yeah. things there, they have steeper slopes there. So faster yeah. moving water. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a combination of you have to have a steep enough slope to retain some material that can move. Um, and so that, you know, besides from rock falling, you have bare, bare rock cliffs that will actually fall down um, intact rock. You need to have a steep, a slope that's not so steep that the soil just and rock just falls off right away. Um, and Ben, so um, I know we, we're, we're coming close on your time and I know you've been at work all day. So one last question for me. Um, is what is the future of landslide study and what are do you guys have any new programs ongoing or uh ones that you're about to embark on what what's the future look like for studying um, landslides with with the usgs well um we are there's there's a number of things i'd say we're exploring lower cost and more distributed sensors to measure the antecedent soil moisture and, and water conditions in the subsurface uh, we're exploring different satellite and remotely sensed products. So there's uh, things like, uh, well, there's, there's um, land surface models as well that can give us real-time updates of hydrologic conditions that you probably also are aware of for, for weather prediction. Um, and so really trying to get at larger scale predictions. How do we go from what we've learned at the small scale to broader scales and really understand why did this particular slope fail or why is this area failing? And of course, that that's going to involve some uh, heavy iteration with the weather forecasters to understand the weather systems uh, better as well and how we can kind of integrate our forecasts and predictions with weather predictions and, and, um, and those, those services. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, we certainly appreciate it. Uh, for our followers who are watching uh, tonight live or those who may be listening on the podcast a little bit later on, uh, do you have any sites, websites, um, social media handles that 
that folks can uh, check out and maybe get a little bit more information if they want? Sure. The, the best place is landslides.usgs.gov. And that will lead us to all kinds of things, our research, our information about the post-fire debris flows, our information about landslide monitoring, and even just some general information about landslides. And, and very soon, we also hope to have a national map of landslide occurrence across the United States. It's not going to be complete, but it's a program that we're starting to try to, to build up just so that everyone all across the country can kind of see where is their good characterization of landslides and do I live in a, in a particular landslide prone area. Um, so yeah, thank you so much, Scotty. It's been a pleasure. And I hope you guys, uh, hope to, to chat with you guys again more in the future. Yeah, we definitely would definitely appreciate your uh, you joining us tonight and uh, learned a lot. And uh, by the way, for those folks, uh, again, check out that website, especially if you live in Western North Carolina, upstate South Carolina, as uh, as we head into uh, this upcoming tropical season. So, Ben, um, you don't have to stick around if you don't want to. I know it's been a busy day for you. We're going to kind of transition into uh, doing a quick recap of uh, what's going on in the tropics with Shay and then Instead of doing our news segment tonight, uh, we do have some severe weather going on in South Carolina and Eastern North Carolina, so uh, we want to talk about that. So, Shay, I will hand it off to you first. I know it's kind of uh, quiet after Barry, but uh, kind of give us a sense of what's going on out there. Yeah, Scotty, thank you very much. Yeah, I was, I was I'm planning on trying to get some, some um, updated information on how much rain actually fell over Louisiana. We, we did have the initial burst of rain. Barry made landfall uh, as a Minimum, minimum category one hurricane, very briefly went back to tropical storm, headed north and up through the central plains up towards Arkansas. And now you can see here on the screen where remnants of Barry are. This is going to be causing a several lines of thunderstorms over the next few days, couple of days, especially along the mid-Atlantic all the way up to the northeast as a lot of inland trap troughing is going to be sort of edging towards the coastline, caught up along the tail end of Barry. It's almost like a cold front with several low pressures along it at this point. Uh, so right now it's it's moving east at 17. It's really just caught up along a front and it's gonna be problematic for at least the next couple of days before firing off over the Atlantic Ocean and, and gone for good eventually. So uh, outside of that, nothing, uh, nothing to do in the tropics. Everything looks pretty quiet over the next five days and not expecting any development uh, whatsoever. So we're, we're pretty quiet for right now again. We got to continue to watch areas like the tropics. Uh, I'm sorry, not the tropics, but the Gulf of Mexico uh, and the Eastern Caribbean, as, as well as the warmer Western Caribbean. And that's those are that's an area of concern already. If we get any kind of uh, easterly trade buildup along that zone along the Caribbean over towards the Western Caribbean, that can mean uh, disastrous results for the Gulf of Mexico for the states along there. So we have to always watch those this time of the year as waters warm up. Um, our waters are warming up significantly along the eastern coast, southeast region specifically, into the upper 80s. We hit 87 degrees in Charleston for the first time this year. And so our shelf waters are very warm. The Gulf Stream is still warm. And um, there hasn't been any activity out there really stirring the waters up. So no cool water upwelling only means the depth of that warm water gets deeper and deeper over time. So back to you. Shay, one quick question before we get to severe weather, and I know Barry just happened, so we don't have all the information. We've not been able to do a lot of the research, but a lot of people ask me and maybe some of our viewers who are watching tonight, they noticed that Barry was kind of an odd-looking storm. Um, we saw a lot of the moisture on, on the southern half of the storm instead of the, the northern half. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, why that might, might have been? Sure. Yeah, there was a ridge to the north that was driving some, some drier air into the northern quadrants of the system. 
There was a little bit of a displacement from north to south, a little bit of upper shear that was driving those cloud tops down. So that's why a lot of the moisture was limited to the south side of the storm. As it lifted to the north, that wrapped around to the eastern side and ultimately to the northeastern quadrant of the system. So it really just took a few days for that Gulf moisture to really start trying to wrap around at least half or more of that storm. But for the most part, right before it made landfall, it looked like the central dense overcast zone of that storm made it very hard to even define a center of circulation on, on satellite imagery. So it was really, it was kind of odd. It was almost um, oblong in shape, uh, more asymmetrical than symmetrical. But as it made, as it really made its way towards land, it really started to tighten up and get that more defined characteristic of a hurricane. And so I'm sure with storm surge and some of the other parameters, some of the hurricane hunter uh, dropping signs right then at that point, that, that 11 a.m. update, they decided to upgrade it to a hurricane at least um, while it was making landfall as predicted. So they hats off to them for doing a great job seeing the storm coming from days out over the Tennessee Valley, out over the Gulf and predicting the wind speeds and most everything correctly. There was a lot of uncertainty for the first couple of days. Once they hit water, they did a really good job. So hats off to NHC and everyone involved. I think the weather word, weather Twitter word for the weekend was swirl. I think I saw the word swirl so many times on weather Twitter. So uh, anyways, Barry was was a very unique storm. And uh, we've had our first landfall of the 2019 uh, tropical season. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the severe weather. I know, uh, Chris, you and Jared have been uh, monitoring that. So I'll I'll toss the ball off to you guys and let you kind of talk about what's going on right now. Yeah, it's, it's pretty quiet up in Columbia, but uh, I know looking down uh, Jarrett's way, down uh, 26 uh, toward Charleston, especially east of 95 right now, we got a couple of big storms going, and yeah, Jared, uh, you have it. Yeah, let, yeah let's, uh, let's, let's just go to the radar. Apologies to our uh, audio listeners. Uh, I'm going to do something very visual here. Just pulling up the, uh, just pulling up the radar here from uh, the Charleston, South Carolina station, and so uh, first of all, this storm near Walterboro, it's down to a couple trees. Uh, we've had a couple storm reports come in from this guy. Um, nothing too crazy, but it's just one of those situations where you have um, pulse thunderstorms. It was a hot day. It was uh, it got to 94, 95 with a dew point at times of 80. I saw 84 today at Mount Pleasant, which was god awful and i don't think that's completely right but uh regardless we've had a very very hot day good bit of energy and you get these storms that pulse up and they uh they pulse up they get really strong they produce a lot of lightning and then they collapse and then the wind comes out of them get a little microburst action we caught some of those on our weather stem cameras earlier today i know we're having some trouble running some video right now but um but it was a uh, Pretty cool. The weather stand camera had a really good shot of a uh, microburst. I believe we're in Raleigh, so that was pretty cool. Uh, but as we set this into motion here, you can see this thunderstorm near Walterboro starting the weekend as it moves east. The reflectivity signature is not looking as good. Something kind of following it up on the back end of it, but we are getting to the point where the sun is down. Um, and uh, overall, things will begin to stabilize as the night progresses. Zoom out a little bit from the Charleston radar. We have a few storms to rumbling uh between around hemingway so uh you know a little rain with your barbecue tonight in hemingway approaching conway and maybe maybe might make it to myrtle beach hard to say uh we did have a nice thunderstorm come off of folly beach earlier that has since dissipated um with just a few showers left over and we did have a few thunderstorms uh up towards the greenville north carolina area as uh, my overtaxed machine moves to the MHX radar. This uh, storm was severe near Greenville and now has uh, significantly slowed down, but we still have a few thunderstorms rolling around around Raleigh and uh, Rocky Mountain, those areas as we get uh, 
<clears throat> as we get closer to uh, Raleigh Durham, and uh, this is well away from my 95, but you know, there still could produce a lot of lightning again. Just because a thunderstorm isn't marked as severe doesn't mean it's not dangerous. So just make sure that you know when thunder roars, go indoors or. Or in my case, when my dachshund roars, we go indoors. He usually is barking at it about 15 minutes before the onset of the storm. So he's uh, pretty good like that. But uh, anyway, it's just it's July in the southeast. Uh, these things happen at the time. And uh, more hot weather and, and more storms leaning more towards storms uh, as the week goes on, Scotty. Yeah, speaking of that, Evan, I, I know you live in the Asheville area. You guys had a pretty unique storm yesterday it just kind of set over Asheville for hours upon hours you want to talk a little bit about that yeah it was pretty bizarre and honestly I don't think I can explain it perfectly my best guess is that it was um so it was a stationary thunderstorm uh, occurred sometime in the afternoon and really lasted over this thin strip of Buncombe County and it just kept regenerating regenerating and lasted for probably close to two hours. Um, it, it was just a really weird thing. And my guess is that it was triggered by some, some type of uh, topographic mountain range right near there. Um, it is just downstream of Mount Pisgah um, and not, I guess, a little ways north of the Balsam Range, uh, the Balsam Mountains. So I hope maybe it was winds coming up and over Mount Pisgah and triggering that storm. Uh, it, was, it was just kind of a bizarre storm. It doesn't happen very often like that. Um, but it dumps three more of the rain. Sure, there wasn't a plane up there seeding it. Yeah, some chemtrails. I had seen a plane come over earlier, but just kidding. Um, no chemtrails were involved. Um, but it, it, it was it was it was weird, as you said, Scotty. I don't exactly know how to explain it. I know our, our friend uh, friend of the show, Jason Boyer, Chief Meteorologist at WLMS. He like took pictures and videos of him sitting in his car waiting for the heavy rain to stop so he could go into uh, into channel 13 there so yeah i was about three miles north of the rain band and you know doing cutting trees at work and the whole time the the you could hear a little bit of thunder but it was mostly just heavy rain you could see just that dark cloud is constantly moving past but never shifting north and never shifting south uh pretty pretty unique thing so i, I thought that was pretty crazy uh peter uh, up in the northeast you guys dealing with thunderstorms and i want to talk to you first about the thunderstorms and the heat and then i'll bring it down to chris uh, because South Carolina a little bit more used to the heat, but you guys are about to get really hot up there. Talk to us about that. <laughs> well, uh, first of all, while you all were talking during this show tonight, uh, I caught this nice little lightning bolt out the window. <laughs> so there you go. That's the uh, remnants of Barry coming through tonight. And uh, we did have a little bit of severe weather uh, last about an hour or so, but uh, it's all over with now. And uh yeah, so there you go. So luckily the power stayed on and everything's good. Uh, but uh, now we're dealing with the heat coming up the end of the week. Uh, we're going to be sitting in the upper 90s with heat index anywhere from 105 to 110. And uh, Saturday is going to be the hottest day. We're going to have an air temperature of 100, which never happens. And a heat index of like 110, maybe to 115. So... Very, very hot. <laughs> I hope everybody's air conditioner is working because it's going to be bad. Uh, but we'll finally cool down maybe by Sunday night or Monday with more storms. So we'll see what happens with that. Oh, you get a little taste of our territory. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Chris, talking about the heat, I know you, you've been looking at that in, uh, in South Carolina. So I'll let you kind of talk about that. And then I can talk about uh, what to expect here in North Carolina. 
Yes, yeah, Scotty. It's been. It's, everybody knows it's this late. Uh, we're really getting into late July, so it's going to be hot in South Carolina, especially across the Midlands. Um, you know, we just get that downslope flow uh, a lot of times coming off the mountains, and by the time it gets to Columbia, it's just like a convection oven. But uh, yeah, today uh, we got up to 97 degree or 97 or 98 at uh, at the airport. Um, and, and going through the next you know, three to five days, it's going to be much of the same with temps in the upper 90s, 97 to 98 each day with a really, really high humidity and uh, dew point values. That's going to be really up there making it feel oppressively hot. Uh, if there is one like silver lining in this, it's, uh, you know, starting uh, really tonight and throughout the day tomorrow into uh, and into Friday, we'll have a, a, a little trough develop on the uh on the east side of the mountains right over us. And with that, it's gonna be a, a little better dynamics to support uh, more scattered storms. Um, the only the only drawback to this is uh, the storm motion really tomorrow and Friday is gonna be pretty slow. So uh, any storms that do develop, especially uh, tomorrow afternoon, uh, may present a uh, localized flash flooding risk uh, along with you know all the other stuff, uh, cloud of ground lightning and, and maybe a couple uh, downbursts or, or microbursts here or there. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it, late July is what we expect. But uh, yeah, definitely saying. Totally agree with you. It's gonna be like that to the coast too for the folks along the coastline, especially with the sea breeze piles up the storms inland. So we'll um, we'll have to we'll have to look at slow motion for storm velocities and everything like that as well. <clears throat> All the way here, I think um, one of the things to take away is when we have these heavy rainfalls, <clears throat> a lot of times are in the afternoon, but at nighttime these outflow boundaries that, that get, they kind of get shot out when these storms go around and then they, they trigger more storms at nighttime, which actually trigger more storms in the daytime when you have saturated areas. So it's almost like a cyclical pattern with water on the ground, feeding more water aloft the next day. Yeah. And, and Shay, talking about those microbursts, we, we've got that video pulled up here in just a second. James has got that. I want to share a screen with you. As we talk about the heat, um, this is uh, what we can expect here in the Carolinas. Oh, you don't want to see that. You want to see this. Uh, this is kind of the heat index. And as you can see here, I'm going to highlight uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. Somehow Chicago gets highlighted too, but we're going to look at Charlotte. And you can see these are kind of percentages of heat index. And you can look at this. There's a 59 to 60% chance that heat index is in Charlotte on Saturday it could reach 50, uh, it could reach 105 degrees. If you look on Sunday, 48% chance of heat index of 105 degrees in Charlotte. And I think that's the criteria in the Charlotte area for, for heat advisory. So be on the lookout for that. 88% chance of seeing the heat index above one at or above 100 degrees on Saturday, and then an 81% chance of seeing that in Charlotte. So on Sunday, and if you look at Charleston, I found this. Um, there's an 11% chance. I mean, 11 is pretty high. Uh, looking at this, 11% chance of seeing a heat index of 110 or greater. And then you look at Sunday, that goes up to 26% chance. So uh, there's definitely the possibility of seeing some serious heat uh, in, in North and in South Carolina. And then we'll go up to Asheville, where Evan's at. You can see the numbers are a lot lower but then we get to a 5% chance of the heat index at or above 100 degrees, a 25% chance of the heat index at or above 95 degrees. So uh, that is 95 degrees heat index in Asheville is, is pretty high. I mean, it, it, that doesn't happen 
uh, often in the Asheville area. So that just kind of shows you the heat that's going to be coming into the area uh, over the weekend. And as Peter alluded to, we are seeing signs of a cool down as we close out the end of June and possibly or July and the possibility of seeing an increase in uh, precipitation. Uh, so as Mother Nature likes to do, it kind of balances itself out. We may have a hot beginning of the month and then a cooler uh, end part of the month. So definitely the the chance of seeing some pretty hot and likely dangerous situ uh, conditions over the weekend. So if you're out in the Carolinas anywhere from the mountains to the beaches, uh, be sure to uh, take those heat precautions into play and uh, keep uh, keep safe out there. Find you an area, lake or, or creek or pool or something like that and just cool off. So um james i think we have yes. you now so um you want to show us that cool footage that uh, you guys stumbled upon on yesterday yeah we just mentioned a moment ago the uh, possibility for microbursts in the forecast for thursday check out this video from tuesday in raleigh captured by the weather stem camera atop the north carolina state university's carter finley stadium there in wake forest you can see the microburst that's the thunderstorm there collapsing and those winds coming rushing out of the storm like a center column that then hits the ground and fans out the national weather service tells us two to three trees in oak park community were downed because of this storm and so it's a great visualization to what we are so often trying to tell you is that a microburst like you're seeing here on the screen from this weather stem camera can cause trees to come down or potentially cause even other damage. Sometimes that damage gets confused for a tornado. It can be so severe and this camera guys just happened to be in the right place at the right time recording as we witness this wet microburst in Wake County on Tuesday. Yeah, and that's a great, great visual of, of what we talk about. And that's why wind, we say wind is wind, no matter if it's rotating or blowing in a straight line. If it's if the wind speeds are high enough, it can cause damage and even some injuries and potentially death, uh, you know, if, if it's blowing high enough to cause a lot of damage. So uh, we appreciate you watching tonight here at the Carolina Weather Group. I do want to mention next week we're going to be talking about hail and kind of theming with, with severe thunderstorms. Uh, we're going to be talking with Dr. Ian Jamico. Uh, he'll be uh, joining us uh, talking about all about hell. He works for uh, the National Hell Institute, and they've been out uh, in the uh, the plains over the, uh, this past spring and early summer chasing storms, kind of like we did a few uh, weeks ago. And so he's going to talk to us about uh, that research and some of the data that they got from that. So we appreciate you joining us tonight. Again, stay safe out there this weekend. Stay cool. Make sure that... Uh, you uh, get you some rest and uh, stay out of the sun. And if you're doing anything fun, don't uh, don't forget to send us some pictures. Let us know. Tag us on Twitter or Facebook. We'd love to uh, display those as well. So, again, thank you for listening to the Carolina Weather Group. We recommend you uh, following us on uh, your favorite podcast application. Give us that five-star rating. We'd love to hear about that. And we'd love to hear your suggestions for future shows or future guests. We hope you have a great weekend, and we'll see you back here next Wednesday night for another episode of the Carolina Weather Group. Hey, this is Tim Pounds, digital content editor for the Carolina Weather Group. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to check out our weekly live stream every Wednesday at 8.15 p.m. Eastern on all the major streaming applications such as Facebook, YouTube, Periscope, and Twitch, just to name a few. Additionally, be sure to catch our weekly podcasts that are published on your favorite applications such as Anchor.fm, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Apple Podcasts. Stay weather aware, drive hands-free, and have a wonderful day.